Chapter Thirty Two of Dope. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Brandon. Dope by Sax Romer. Chapter Thirty Two on the Isle of Dogs. As the police boat left Limehouse Pier, a clammy southeasterly breeze blowing upstream lifted the fog in clearly defined layers an effect very singular to behold at one moment a great arc lamp burning above the lavender pond of the surrey commercial dock shot out a yellowish light across the thames then as suddenly as it had come the light vanished again as a stratum of mist floated before it the creaking of the oars muffled and ghostly and none of the men in the boat seemed to be inclined to converse heading across stream they made for the unseen promontory of the isle of dogs navigation was suspended and they reached midstream without seeing a ship's light then came the damp wind again to lift the fog and ahead of them they discerned one of the general steam navigation company's boats awaiting an opportunity to make her dock at the head of the deptford creek the glamour of an ironworks on the mill wall shore burst loudly upon their ears and away astern the lights of the surrey dock shone out once more hugging the bank they pursued a southerly course and from limehouse reach crept down to greenwich reach fog closed in upon them a curtain obscuring both light and sound when the breeze came again it had gathered force and it drove the mist before it in wreathing banks and brought to their ears a dull lowing and to their nostrils a farmyard odor from the cattle pens ghostly flames leaping and falling leaping and falling crowed where a gasworks lay on the greenwich bank ahead eastward swept the river now and fresher blew the breeze as they rounded the blunt point of the isle the fog banks went swirling past them astern and the lights on either shore showed clearly ahead a ship's siren began to roar somewhere behind them the steamer which they had passed was about to pursue her course closer inshore drew the boat passing a series of wharves and beyond these a tract of waste desolate bank very gloomy in the half-light and apparently boasting no habitation of man the activities of the greenwich bank seemed remote and the desolation of the isle of dogs very near touching them intimately with its peculiar gloom a light sprang into view some little distance inland notable because it shone lonely in an expanse of utter blackness Carey broke the long silence dougals he said put us ashore here the police boat was pulled in under a rickety wooden structure beneath which the thames water whispered eerily and carrie and seaton disembarked mounting a short flight of slimy wooden steps and crossing a roughly planked place onto a shingly slope climbing this they were on damp waste ground pathless and uninviting dougal's is being watched said carrie i think i told you yes said seaton but i have formed the opinion that the dope gang is too clever for the ordinary type of man 
Sinsenois is an instance of what I mean. Neither you nor I doubt that he is a receiver of drugs, perhaps the receiver. But where is our case? The only real link connecting him with the West End habitue is his wife, and she has conveniently deserted him. We cannot possibly prove that she hasn't, while he chooses to maintain that she has. Hmm, grunted Carrie, abruptly changing the subject. I hope I'm not recognized here. Have you visited the place before? Some years ago. Unless there are any old hands on view tonight, I don't think I shall be spotted. He wore a heavy and threadbare overcoat, which was several sizes too large for him, a muffler and a weed cap. The outfit supplied by Seton Pasha, and he had a very vivid and unpleasant recollection of his appearance as viewed in his little pocket mirror before leaving Seaton's room. As they proceeded across the muddy wilderness towards the light which marked the site of Dougal's, they presented a picture of a sufficiently villainous pair. The ground was irregular, and the path wound sinuously about mounds of rubbish, so that often the guiding light was lost, and they stumbled blindly among nondescript litter which apparently represented the accumulation of centuries but finally they turned a corner formed by a stack of rusty scrap iron and found a long low building before them from a ground-floor window light streamed out upon the fragments of rubbish strewing the ground from amid which sickly weeds uprose as if in defiance of nature's laws seaton paused and what is Dougal's exactly? he asked. A public house? No, rapped Carrie. It's a coffee shop used by the dockers. You'll see when we get inside. The place never closes, so far as I know. And if we made them close, there would be a dock strike. He crossed and pushed open the swing door. As Seaton entered at his heels, a babble of coarse voices struck upon his ears and he found himself in a superheated atmosphere, suggestive of shag, stale spirits, and imperfectly washed humanity. Dougal's proved to be a kind of hut of wood and corrugated iron, not unlike an army canteen. There were two counters, one on either end, and two large American stoves. Oil lamps hung from the beams, and the furniture was made up of trestle tables, rough wooden chairs and empty barrels. Coarse thick curtains covered all the windows but one. The counter further from the entrance was laden with articles of food, such as pies, tins of bully beef, and savloys, while the other was devoted to liquid refreshment in the form of ginger beer and cider, or so the casks were conspicuously labeled, tea, coffee, and cocoa. The place was uncomfortably crowded the patrons congregating more especially around the two stoves. There were men who looked like dock laborers, seamen, and riverside loafers, lascars, Chinese, Arabs, and Dagos, and at the solid counter there presided a red-armed, brawny woman, fierce of mien and ready of tongue, while a huge Irishman possessing a broken nose and deficient teeth ruled the liquid department with a rod of iron and a flow of language which shocked even Kerry. This formidable ruffian, a retired warrior of the ring, was Dougal, 
said to be the strongest man from tower hill to the river lee as they entered several of the patrons glanced at them curiously but no one seemed to be particularly interested kerry wore his cap pulled down over his fierce eyes and had the collar of his topcoat turned up he looked about him as if expecting to recognize someone and as they made their way to dougal's counter a big fellow dressed in the manner of a dock laborer stepped up to the chief inspector and clapped him on the shoulder have one with me mike he said winking the coffee's good kerry bent towards him swiftly and anybody here jervis he whispered george martin is at the bar i've had the tip that he traffics you'll remember he figured in my last report sir kerry nodded and the trio elbowed their way to the counter the pseudo dockhand was a detective attached to lehman street and one who knew the night birds of east end london as few men outside their own circles knew them three coffees pat he cried leaning against the shoulder of the heavy red-headed fellow who lolled against the counter and two lumps of sugar in each to hell with your sugar roared dougal grasping three cups deftly in one hairy hand and filling them from a steaming urn there's no more sugar tonight not any brown sugar asked the customer yous can have one tastespoon of brown and no more tonight cried dougal he stooped rapidly below the counter then pushed the three cups of coffee towards the detective the latter tossed a shilling down at which dougal glared ferociously twas weed sugar you said he roared a second shilling followed dougal swept both coins into a drawer and turned to another customer who was also clamoring for coffee securing their cups with difficulty for the red-headed man surly refused to budge they retired to a comparatively quiet spot and seaton tasted the hot beverage hmm he said rum good rum too it's a nice position for me snapped kerry i don't think i would remind you that there's a police station actually on this blessed island if there was a dive like dougal's anywhere west it would be raided as a matter of course but to shut dougal's down would be to raise hell there are two laws in england sir one for piccadilly and the other for the isle of dogs he sipped his coffee with appreciation jervis looked about him cautiously and that's george the red-headed hooligan against the counter he said he's been liquoring up pretty freely and i shouldn't be surprised to find that he's got a job on tonight he has a skiff beached below here and i think he's waiting for the tide good rapped kerry where can we find a boat well jervis smiled there were several lying there if you didn't come in in an r p boat we did but i'll dismiss it we want a small boat very good sir we shall have to pinch one that doesn't matter declared kerry glancing at seaton with a sudden twinkle discernible in his steely eyes what do you say sir i agree with you entirely replied seaton quietly we must find a boat and lie off somewhere to watch for george he should be worth following we'll be moving then said the lehman street detective it'll be high tide in an hour they finished their coffee as quickly as possible the stuff was not far below boiling point 
then jervis returned the cups to the counter good night pat he cried and rejoined seaton and Carey. as they came out into the desolation of the scrap heaps the last traces of fog had disappeared and a steady breeze came up the river fresh and salty from the nore jervis led them in a northeasterly direction threading his way through pyramids of rubbish until with the wind in their teeth they came out upon the river bank at a point where the shore shelved steeply downwards a number of boats lay on the shingle we're pretty well opposite greenwich marshes said jervis you can just see one of the big gasometers the end boat is george's have you searched it rapped Carey, placing a fresh piece of chewing gum between his teeth i have sir oh he's too wise for that i propose said seaton briskly that we borrow one of the other boats and pull downstream to where the short pier juts out we can hide behind it and watch for our man i take it he'll be bound upstream and the tide will help us to follow him quietly right said Carey. we'll take the small dinghy it's big enough he turned to jervis nip across to the wooden stairs he directed and tell inspector white to stand by but to keep out of sight if we've started before you return go back and join em very good sir jervis turned and disappeared into the mazes of rubbish as seaton and Carey grasped the boat and ran it down into the rising tide Carey boarding seaton thrust it out into the river and climbed in over the stern phew the current drags like a towboat said Carey. they were being drawn rapidly upstream but as Carey seized the oars and began to pull steadily this progress was checked he could make little actual headway however the tide races round this bend like fury he said bear on the oar sir seaton thereupon came to Carey's assistance and gradually the dinghy crept upon its course until below the little pier they found a sheltered spot where it was possible to run in and lie hidden as they won this haven quiet said seaton don't move the oars look we were only just in time immediately above them where the boats were beached a man was coming down the slope carrying a hurricane lantern as Carrie and seaton watched the man raised the lantern and swung it to and fro watch whispered seaton he's signalling to the greenwich bank Carrie's teeth snapped savagely together and he chewed but made no reply until there it is he said rapidly on the marshes a speck of light in the darkness it showed a distant moving lantern on the curtain of the night although few would have credited Carrie with the virtue he was a man of cultured imagination and it seemed to him as it seemed to seaton pasha that the dim light symbolized the life of the missing woman of the woman who hovered between the gay world from which tragically she had vanished and some chinese hell upon whose brink she hovered neither of the watchers was thinking of the crime and the criminal of sir lucian pine or Casma, but of mrs monty irvin mysterious victim of a mysterious tragedy oh dan you must find her you must find her pure weak heart dinny you can how she is sufferin 
clairvoyantly to carrie's ears was born an echo of his wife's words the traffic he whispered if we lose george martin tonight we deserve to lose the case i agree chief inspector said seaton quietly the grating sound made by a boat thrust out from a shingle beach came to their ears above the whispering of the tide a ghostly figure in the dim light george martin clambered into his craft and took to the oars if he's for the greenwich bank said seaton grimly he has a stiff task but for the greenwich bank the boat was headed and pulling mightily against the current the man struck out into midstream they watched him for some time silently noting how he fought against the tide sturdily heading for the point at which the signal had shown then what do you suggest asked seaton he may follow the surrey bank upstream i suggest said carrie that we drift once in limehouse reach we'll hear him there are no pleasure parties punting about that stretch let us pull out then i propose that we wait for him at some convenient point between the west india dock and limehouse basin good rapped carrie thrusting the boat out into the fierce current you may have spent a long time in the east sir but you're fairly wise on the geography of the lower thames gripped in the strongly running tide they were borne smoothly upstream using the oars merely for the purpose of steering the gloomy mystery of the london river claimed them and imposed silence upon them until familiar landmarks told of the northern bend of the thames and the light above the lavender pond shone out upon the unctuously moving water each pulling a skull they headed in for the left bank there's a wharf ahead said seaton looking back over his shoulder if we put in beside it we can wait there unobserved good enough said gary they bent to the oars stealing stroke by stroke out of the grip of the tide and presently came to a tiny pool above the wharf structure where it was possible to lie undisturbed by the eager current those limitations which are common to all humanity and that guile which is peculiar to the chinese failed the fact from their ken that the deserted wharf in whose shelter they lay was at once the roof and the gateway of sinsinwa's receiving office as the boat drew into the bank a chinese boy who was standing on the wharf retired into the shadows from a spot visible downstream but invisible to the men in the boat he signalled constantly with a hurricane lantern three men from new scotland yard were watching the house of sinsinwa and sinsinwa had given no sign of animation since some hours earlier he had extinguished his bedroom light yet george drifting noiselessly upstream received a signal to the effect police while seaton pasha and chief inspector carey lay below the biggest dope cache in london seaton sometimes swore under his breath carey chewed incessantly but george never came at that eerie hour of the night when all things living from the lowest to the highest nor excepting mother earth herself grow chilled when all nature's perishable handiwork feels the touch of death a wild sudden cry rang out a wailing sorrowful cry that seemed to come from nowhere from everywhere from the bank 
from the stream that rose and fell and died sobbing into the hushed whisper of the tide seaton's hand fashioned like a vice onto kerry's shoulder and merciful god he whispered what was it who was it if it wasn't a spirit it was a woman replied kerry hoarsely and a woman very near to her end kerry seaton pasha had dropped all formality kerry if it calls for all the men that scotland yard can muster we must search every building down to the smallest rat-hole in the floor on this bank and do it by dawn we'll do it rapped kerry end of chapter thirty two recording by john brandon